I went to sleep on Thursday night, and I woke up in a different country. If you haven't heard um, at this point, on Friday we got the news. Immediately when I uh, woke up, I began to look at my news feed, and I was getting text messages and emails. We heard the news that the Supreme Court of the United States ruled by a five-to-four vote that the Constitution guarantees a right to same-sex marriage in all 50 states of the Union. Now, this ruling will have far-reaching implications uh, for our country, intended implications, unintended implications, and it will have far-reaching implications for those that follow Christ, for those who name the name of Christ. And so I want to uh, talk to you about this ruling and provide some, some clarity and some insight on this issue. On Thursday, I turned in my sermon from Acts chapter 9 that I was preparing to preach on this Sunday, and we uh, printed out all the, the sermon notes and put them in the bulletins. Well, uh, Friday, I'm sorry, Saturday morning, I woke up and had my quiet time. And I was intending to address this issue before my sermon and, and kind of tied into my existing sermon. But as I walked through the different verses in my quiet time, it became clear that God was redirecting me. And God wanted me to spend the entire sermon time addressing this issue. And so last night, we pulled the, all the little handouts out of the bulletins. We'll put them back in next week. The date will be wrong, but we'll use them next week as we get back into Acts But what I want to do this morning is I want to walk you through my quiet time. I use a Bible reading plan that takes me through the Bible, the entire Bible, in one year's time. And every day of the Bible reading plan, I read from four different places in the Bible. Two places in the Old Testament and two places in the New Testament. And on Saturday morning, I had my coffee, sitting at my dining room table, reading my Bible. God just began to speak with me uh, in power and to remind me of some important truths. And my, my purpose is twofold this morning. One, I want to provide clarity and insight on the issue at hand. But two, I want to show you how the Bible gives us peace and perspective and strength. And how God did that for me on Saturday morning. So we're going to start in Psalm 119. You can turn there with me. Psalm 119. This is the first passage that I read on Saturday morning, Psalm 119, verse 169. Now, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, the longest chapter in the book of Psalms, and the entire psalm is Hebrew poetry that centers on the Word of God. It teaches the importance of the Word of God, and so... I read verses 169 through 176, the last passage in that long psalm. So turn there with me, Psalm 119, verse 169. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Truth with no mixture of error. It's important we realize that the Bible is truth. Psalm 119, verse 169, the Bible says, Let my cry come before you, O Lord, give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you, deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. 
My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not, uh, for I do not forget your commandments. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. We are grateful, Lord, for the, the privilege of corporate worship. And Lord, we're gathered here to extol you, to praise you, to exalt you. And we're here, Lord, to confess our dependence upon you. Lord, we need you greatly. And Lord, I pray that you would draw near in these moments. And by your Spirit, taking your word and applying it to our hearts, would you help us to understand truth and give us the resolve to live according to the truth that you show us. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. God, may your word today give us peace as followers of Christ. May your word today give us perspective as followers of Christ and in light of what's going on in our nation. And may your word give us strength to keep on keeping on for the glory of God. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. And so, the first passage I read on Saturday morning in my quiet time was Psalm 119, verses 169 through 176. And if you want to just kind of jot down notes, this passage reminded me that God's Word is right. God's Word is right. Did you notice what it said there in verse 172? My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. What God says, what God commands is right because he is righteous himself. And so when he speaks, what he says is right. His rules are right. They are true. They are what's best for your life and my life. And so as Bible-believing Christians, we are to choose to believe and live according to the Word of God. Did you notice what it says there in verse 173? Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I have chosen to live according to your Word. And look in verse 157. I read this a few days earlier. Powerful verse. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries. In other words, the psalmist here is saying, I feel like the majority is against me. But I do not swerve from your testimonies. Even if there is a, a, a majority of people against me and against you, God, I will not swerve from what your word st- says. I will stay on the right path. And so this was just a reminder to me that God's word is right. What he says is true. And you and I are called as followers of Christ to stand on the word of God as our ultimate authority for faith, what we believe, and practice how we live our lives. And that's important because when it comes to this issue of same-sex marriage, the Bible speaks to this issue. And the Bible gives us great insight into what God thinks about this issue. And we've come to a time in our nation when it's not 
it's not enough just to say the Bible says. We've got to show people where it says it. We've got to articulate what the Bible teaches and where the Bible teaches these things. And so I want to just kind of take you on a quick survey of God's Word to show you what God's Word says about these issues. First, let's start in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at all the passages, but just a couple. Romans chapter 1. Verse 21. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, Paul writes, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, instead of worshiping the Creator, they began to worship the creation. In verse 24 it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Notice there he calls the passions dishonorable passions, passions that are not rightly ordered. Dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then fast forward to verse 32. This is relevant to our nation. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so God clearly says here that passions between Two women or two men for each other are dishonorable. It is not God's intention for humanity. He calls those kinds of acts shameless acts. And he calls their acts in verse 27 error. He speaks of the due penalty for their error. And so God very clearly says this is not his design for humanity. This is a a perversion, a corruption of God's design when we see these same-sex relationships. And look over with me in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Another passage that speaks clearly to this issue. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8. Paul writes here, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, notice the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So in that list of sins, in that list of things that are contrary to sound doctrine, we see sexual immorality, and we see there specifically mentioned men who practice homosexuality. And so, again, God's Word speaks to this issue and says that same-sex relationships are not His design. They are 
sinful. And you say, well, wait, what about same-sex marriage? I mean, people want to get married, you know, let them get married. Well, listen to me. God has defined what marriage is, and we do not have the liberty to redefine marriage. And you say, wait, wait, where did God define what marriage is? Well, over in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when the Bible says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. A man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That is God's intention for marriage. One woman, one man, married until death alone should part them. And Jesus reemphasizes this in Matthew chapter 19 and affirms this principle from Genesis chapter 2. And so the Bible is clear on what marriage is. And again, we are not at liberty to redefine what marriage is. And so listen to me. God is the creator. And God has a specific design for humanity which is good. And I want you to hear this statement very, very carefully because this kind of summarizes the overall teaching of God's Word. God has given us the gift of sexual intimacy to be enjoyed in the loving boundaries of marriage between one man and one woman until death alone should part them. Any expression of sexuality outside of those boundaries is a sin because it disregards and distorts God's design for humanity. I want you to know that when God gives us commandments and gives us prohibitions, God is not trying to take away our fun. God loves us, and God made us, and God absolutely knows what's best for us. And His design, one man, one woman, married, enjoying the gift of sexuality in the boundaries of that marriage, is His design for humanity. And that's in the Bible. And we've got to say, God's word is right. God's word is right. So I read that in my quiet time. It was just a a faith strengthener for me. In 1521, Martin Luther was brought before the Diet of Worms in Germany. He was brought before this gathering of political and religious leaders because he was preaching and teaching the doctrine of justification by faith. He believed the Bible taught, as it does, that a person is saved not by achieving their salvation through works. They're saved by receiving God's gift through Jesus Christ by faith. And he taught this, and it was very unpopular in that day and time. So they brought him into this very intimidating environment, and they gave Martin Luther an opportunity to recant and say, you know, back away from your writings, back away from your teachings. And here's what Martin Luther said in 1521. He said, My conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. And what we as Bible-believing Christians, what we as a church have to say to a decaying culture is this. No matter who rules on this issue, no matter who says that a certain behavior is right, we have to say... Our conscience is captive to the word of God. Here we stand, we can do no other. Because if we back away from the teaching of the word of God, we are denying the lordship of Christ. And that's not an option. He is our master. He is our Lord. And what he says goes for your life and my life if we are true followers of Jesus. 
And so we've got to say along with Martin Luther, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I'm, I'm going to stick with God's Word. I will not swerve away from His commands. They are right. That's the first passage I studied in my quiet time. Let me take you to the second passage I studied in my quiet time. It's found in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. Turn there with me. 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. This passage reminded me that God is sovereign and He rules over nations and leaders. I'll admit to you that on Friday and waking up on Saturday, I was greatly troubled by, by what I saw happening in our nation, what was being said in our nation from leaders and celebrities and just all across the board. And I needed that reminder in my quiet time from God's Word that God is on His throne, that God is sovereign over nations. Now, just a quick, quick uh, word of context of 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. In this passage, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has brought his massive and brutal army against Judah to overthrow Jerusalem, to overthrow that nation. And Hezekiah is the king of Judah, leading his people against this threat from the Assyrians. And we learn from this story that when we are threatened, when we are overwhelmed, when we are surrounded, when we are in the minority, we should bring our troubles and concerns before the Lord. Because look what it says in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, sent a letter to Hezekiah saying, Surrender or else. And in verse 14, it says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah, this is interesting, went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. I like that. He took it before the Lord and just, and just laid out, God, here's the situation. Here's what's happening. And, 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 and I feel overwhelmed, so I'm just going to take this and, and lay it before you. As I've watched what's transpired in our nation, I'll be honest with you, there have been times when I felt overwhelmed. And because of this decision, there are far-reaching consequences for our nation and for followers of Christ. As a matter of fact, Samuel Alito, a judge on the Supreme Court, wrote in his dissenting opinion this phrase. Perhaps recognizing how its reasoning may be used, the majority, those who voted for same-sex marriage as a constitutional right, The majority attempts toward the end of its opinion to reassure those who oppose same-sex marriage that their rights of conscience will be protected. We will soon see whether this proves to be true. I assume that those who cling to old beliefs will be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes. But if they repeat those views in public, they will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such as such by governments, employers, and schools. When I read that, it sent chills up my spine. Because he's exactly right. There's coming a time in the very near future, I mean just around the corner, sooner rather than later, that if we teach what the Bible says about human sexuality, people will call us bigots. And there will be consequences in the public square. There will be consequences for identifying with Jesus Christ. It's interesting, at Vacation Bible School this year, the theme was based upon the book of Daniel. How many were at VBS and either taught Daniel or in a class you learned about Daniel? Yes. We learned about Daniel in Vacation Bible School. 
And it was timely. And during the week, I think it was at breakfast one morning, I was talking to my kids about why them studying Daniel was so important. And I said, Daniel teaches us, guys, that you can live in the midst of a very ungodly place, surrounded by ungodly people, and still serve the Lord with integrity. Just like Daniel did. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were in exile. They were Jewish boys taken into Babylon, and they were raised by a corrupt, perverse Babylonian culture. And yet, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, they were courageous and did the right thing. And that's important that we learn you can, you can live for the Lord in a corrupt culture because outside of those doors, it's no longer Mayberry. It's Babylon. We are living in the midst of Babylon. And we've got to say it is possible by the grace of God to live a godly, uncompromising, courageous life for His glory in the midst of a decaying culture. And so, what does Hezekiah do in the midst of this threat? He lays it before the Lord. And and we've got to take this Supreme Court decision and all that's being said and the implications. And we just got to lay it before God because he's on his throne. And then we're to ask for God's help. Look what Hezekiah does in, in verse 15. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. They've cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us. Please from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. What does Hezekiah do in the face of of overwhelming odds? Hezekiah comes before God, lays the situation at the foot of his throne, and he calls out to God and asks for help. Can I suggest to you, that's exactly what we need to do. We need to pray like we've never prayed before and ask God to help and move in our midst. Because you know what we learned from this story? We learned that when God decides, He can move with power. Because in this story, God Himself defeats Sennacherib's army. At night, God slays 185,000 Assyrian warriors. And when, when Sennacherib understands that his army has been decimated, he packs up and goes home. And Judah's saved because God moved with power. Listen to me. I know it looks bleak out there, but don't, don't underestimate the ability of God to move with power in our midst. Friday night, I was, I, I was just discouraged. I just was. I've been reading stuff all day long and processing. And, and we, we sat down in, in front of the TV and flipping through the channels and Facing the Giants was on, that movie about football. and It's a Christian, Christian-themed film. And it came to that scene, if you've seen the movie, where a campus revival began to happen at the school. If you remember that scene, the coach walks outside and there on the football field and in the stands surrounding the football field, Students are in small groups praying and weeping and confessing and hugging and studying God's word together. And God sent a a revival to that campus. And I was watching that and I thought, that's exactly what we need. We need revival. 
Revival in our schools, revival in our homes, revival in our churches, revival in our nation. We need revival. And it it just reminded me, God can do that. God can move like that. And I was encouraged just watching that, that movie on that night. And I was thinking in my heart, oh God, do it. Do it here. Do it again. Move with power. And so, this passage in 2 Kings reminded me that God is sovereign. He rules over nations and leaders. But there's a third truth I was reminded of in my quiet time. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And this is so important. And again, this is Saturday morning. I'm, I'm, I'm processing all of this. And God used this passage mightily in my life. Look what it says in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. This passage reminded me that we are called to love our enemies. Look what Jesus says in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Jesus here gives us a very clear explanation of how you and I ought to respond to those who hate us. Who though, to those who, who disagree with us. To those who do not see what things the way we see things. Jesus commands us here to love to do good, to bless, to pray for our enemies. Verses 29 and 30, he tells us, don't retaliate when you're mistreated. And then in verses 31 to 36, he reminds us that when you treat your enemies with love and kindness, you are doing something supernatural. Because look what he says in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. In other words, it's natural to love someone that loves you. It's natural to be kind to someone that's kind to you. That's natural. But when you love somebody who hates you, when you bless someone who's cursing you, when you pray for someone who ridicules you, that is supernatural. It takes the Spirit of God in your life to respond with love to a culture that is trying to intimidate us into silence. So I was reminded, even in light of this Supreme Court decision and and the far-reaching implications, that we're to love our enemies. And, And that's very important because it's possible that there are people in this room this morning or people who will hear this on the internet, who vehemently disagree with what I've said thus far. Vehemently disagree. Say, I don't agree. Well, I, I, that's old-fashioned. I, I don't agree. Can I tell you this? If you disagree with me, if you disagree with us, you know what our response is? We love you. We love you. And we're committed to walk with you and to be there for you as you seek to figure this out. If you have questions, we want to answer your questions. If you want to dialogue, email me, pastorwade at longviewpoint.org. Call the church office tomorrow morning. We'll get together. 
love to talk with you. This is not just a, a monologue where the preacher's shouting everybody down. I would love to discuss this issue with you if, you if you disagree with me. As long as we do it civilly and peacefully, I would love to talk to you about this because we really do care about you. We really do. Perhaps you're here and you struggle with same-sex attraction. No one knows it, but you do. Or or perhaps you're here and and there's some issue in the past that you think disqualifies you from from being a, a vibrant part of what God is doing at Longview Point. You think, I could never be a part of that church because of what I have in my past. And here's what you need to understand. We want you to understand that we deeply, truly care about you. We want you to know that we love you. And we want you to know that there is hope in Jesus Christ. You see, the same Bible that tells us that homosexuality is a sin, the same Bible that tells us that same-sex marriage is not God's design, is the same Bible that tells us that Jesus died for the sins of the world. And we would not be biblical Christians if we simply preached against the sin, but never offered the good news that Jesus saves sinners. You see, here's the deal. This morning, you're looking at a sinner. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. This room is full of folks who are sinners in need of a Savior. No one has it completely figured out. Christians are not perfect, but we have discovered That if you embrace Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, He will wash your sins away and transform your life because He's good and He's full of grace and mercy and love. And we want you to experience the same love we've experienced. You really do. You say, wait, does the Bible really teach there's hope for me despite what I'm struggling with now, or despite my sordid past, is there really hope for me? Well, look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Such an incredible passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look what it says in verse 9. Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Hey, quick word, notice there are more sexual sins there listed than just homosexuality. And we've got to be consistent, don't we? If, if homosexuality is a sin, so is adultery, and so is shacking up before you're married. It's a sin. That's what the Bible says. And then it says, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So wait, that sounds like really bad news. Well, look at the next verse. And such were some of you, he says to the church in Corinth, but you were washed. That means you experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ when his blood was applied to your life and his sins, his blood, his blood washed your sins away. You were washed, you were sanctified. In other words, Jesus began to change you from the inside out. You were justified, brought into a right relationship with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So he's saying here, you you dealt with these sins, you you committed these sins, but you've experienced the forgiving power and life-changing power of Jesus. And so the Bible gives us hope that there is forgiveness, there is transformation found in Jesus Christ. 
You say, your church would never accept a struggler like me. Can I tell you this? You're sitting beside strugglers. You got strugglers all around you. Because the church is not a museum for saints. So we can show up and look at how nice everyone's life is. The church, listen, is a hospital for sinners. And we've all got struggles. Say, well, I got issues in my family. Hey, welcome to the club. We've all got issues in our family. Anybody want to stand up and say, my family's perfect? Anyone want to do that this morning? You know what? We all desperately need Jesus. And I want you to know, no matter your views, no matter if you agree or whatever, listen to me. I want you to understand. I want you to hear me say it before you leave these doors today. Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. And that is the supreme demonstration of the love of God for you. He loves you. He knows you by name. He loves you more than you want to be loved. And if you'll turn to him, you can experience his transforming grace in your life. But there's another passage that I read, the fourth passage. And final passage that reminded me that this world is not our home. Turn to Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Look what the Bible says in verse 17. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears... Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This verse reminds us this world is not our home. We are just passing through. And our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Now I want to make a very important statement for you as a Bible-believing Christian today, and and for our church, when our earthly citizenship, I'm an American citizen, and proud of that, when our earthly citizenship conflicts with our heavenly citizenship, our first allegiance is to King Jesus. Or to, to reiterate what Peter said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than Men, our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. And we've got to remember that, yes, it's uncomfortable. It's getting increasingly uncomfortable for Bible-believing Christians in our land. But this world's not our home anyway. Heaven is our home. And one day, the Bible says, Jesus is going to come back and set everything right. And when that happens, trust me, you want to be on his side. Because look what it says in verse 21. It says, we, we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He's going to come and take us to heaven, transform our bodies into incorruptible, eternal bodies, and he will subject everything to himself. He will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day's coming. He's coming back to set everything right. One of my favorite quotes 
came from Russell Moore from this past weekend. He wrote, The Supreme Court can do many things, but the Supreme Court cannot get Jesus back in that tomb. I like that. They can rule and have judgments and opinions and dissents and majority and minority, but the Supreme Court, nor any earthly body, can change the fact that Jesus Christ has defeated death. And he's alive today, and he's ruling and reigning over the universe. Nothing can change that reality. And so I think you see that as I walk through my quiet time on Saturday morning, just reading these four passages of Scripture, which were in my list of verses, God just encouraged me. He gave me peace. He gave me perspective. And He gave me courage. Strength moving forward. Now, I want to just address this as your pastor. Okay, Wade, what are we going to do? Now what? It's passed with the Supreme Court. It's changed the law of the land in all 50 states. So, so what do we do? How, how do we move forward? Let me give you just a quick list of what we're going to do. First of all, we're going to pray for our nation. And if, if Friday was not a wake-up call to pray for your nation, I don't know how you ever be wakened from your lethargy. I mean, Friday was a, was a major moment in our history that should help us to understand the urgency of the times and the need to fervently, fervently pray for America. As a matter of fact, in a few moments, we're going to have a response time. I'm going to open the front to just, just allow you to come down and just kneel at these steps and just pray for our nation. Secondly, we're going to stand on Scripture as our final authority for faith and practice. We're going to keep preaching and teaching the Word of God faithfully and clearly because we believe the Bible is our ultimate authority. The Bible is truth with no mixture of error. God has spoken and we stand on this book. Our conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here we stand, we can do no other. So we will continue to believe the Bible. We will continue to preach the Bible. We will continue to teach the Bible as the the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Next, we will articulate our stance to avoid ambiguity. In the coming days, we're going to give you some things in terms of policies and bylaws where we are going to be crystal clear about what we believe as a church on these issues and how we are going to move forward as ordained ministers and how we're going to use our campus and all of that. We'll give that information very shortly. But we've been working on that in anticipation of this day. I've told folks I was not surprised Friday. I I was saddened. I was disappointed. I was not surprised. I expected that ruling. And we've been working on being more clear, articulating just just more precisely in our convoluted culture what we believe the Bible teaches and how we're going to operate and function as a family of faith. Next, we're going to preach the gospel to sinners while recognizing that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. We're not going to preach the gospel from some moral high horse and act like there's nothing in our life that needs forgiveness. We're going to say, we are sinners in need of a Savior, and we found the Savior. Can I introduce you to Him? His name is Jesus. You see, that, that's what evangelism is. Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread. Right? That's what it is. 
And we're going to preach the good news of Jesus Christ without apology and clearly and faithfully and boldly because we believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Next, we're going to make disciples. Just like Jesus said in the Great Commission, as we seek to change the world one person at a time. How do you change things? This tsunami of of, of change in our nation. How, how do you change things? Can I tell you, it's not going to be found in a political party. It's not going to be found in who controls the House or the, or the Senate or who the next president is. If you're looking for the political realm for long-lasting change in your nation, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Our only hope is the transforming power of Jesus one person at a time. That's our hope. That he would send revival. And there would be a sweeping movement of his spirit across the land. And so, in the words of Albert Moeller, everything has changed. But nothing has changed. The Supreme Court made their decision and made it public on Friday. But nothing has changed for our church. We're going to keep doing Exactly what we've been doing in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. Because now is not the time to back down. People need Jesus. And hope is only found in Him. So we will continue to preach and proclaim Jesus, making disciples in His name. In 1941... Our nation was not involved in the conflict that would become known as World War II. They were watching things carefully, and there were different groups with the Allied forces trying to get us to engage in that war. But we were not officially at war in 1941. Well, all that changed on December 7th. On December 7th, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. A day that will live and has lived in infamy. And on that day, everything changed. Because that's when our nation decided to step into the conflict. To fight against the evil and tyranny in our world. Fighting with the Allied forces. And because we stepped into that conflict, that war was won. Evil was defeated. But it's interesting when... The Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Winston Churchill, the prime minister of Great Britain, said this. They, the Japanese, have awakened a sleeping giant. In other words, what were they thinking? Can I tell you this? Perhaps, perhaps, this Supreme Court decision will awaken the sleeping giant in America called the church. Perhaps our best days are ahead. Perhaps we will see God use his people like never before in this rapidly deteriorating culture. We'll see in the coming days if the sleeping giant has indeed been awakened.